been thinking a lot about names uh, this week, and I was thinking through some of like nicknames. So you may have a few nicknames. I've got nicknames based on like where I'm at and the people that I'm with. Uh, so one of the nicknames I had kind of growing up was uh, my dad's side of the family in the South. Even when I was like a kid, they used to call me Marky. Like it was like a cute little kid's name because uh, my dad's name is Mark. So they couldn't call me Mark and him Mark, and it would just be confusing. So he was Mark, and I was Marky growing up. And still, when I get with those people, uh, that nickname comes out. I'm like a 43-year-old man, and like my aunt will be like, hey, Marky, how you doing? And I'll be like, why are you calling me that? I'm, a, I'm an adult. I, you, that's a child's uh, nickname. Um, when I was in camp growing up, uh, all the camp legends had nicknames. And so it was my goal the, the year I got on, the first year I got on staff at camp to get a nickname. Uh, and so uh, my first year nickname, it just kind of stuck. I'm not sure how I got it or where I got it or whatever, but I basically wanted to make sure that it stuck and that people for generations of camp would continue to use my nickname. Uh, so they called me the man child. Um, <laughs> And that fit. I, it fit, in that, especially in that environment, because I was a large person with, like, um, you know, just was not very mature. Yeah, so uh, always having fun, always doing crazy stuff, and so they called me the man-child. So even years later, I would show up and just be visiting camp, and I'd bump into a camper or another counselor that I was on staff with, and they would say, hey, man-child, what's up? And I'd be like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm now professional, and I am post-college, and I'm trying to have people take me seriously. Let's just cool it on the man-child stuff. Um, you know, and, and I was just thinking through, like, these nicknames that we have, some of these nicknames that we have, even now, like, oftentimes people will call me pastor, which I think is the funniest one. Like, you know, if you had asked anybody in my youth group growing up or anybody in my church growing up, a church that was kind of similar to this, they would have laughed at you if you told them that someday that my nickname would be pastor or people would call me pastor. So even in that regard, it's like something that identifies part of my identity and part of what I get to do and part of who I am. And so that nickname kind of means something to a group of people who I get to do that for or with. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about those, uh, what people call you and if you have any nicknames that kind of are like specific to times and people and places and groups. Um, I found that to be, you know, part of my journey. Uh, and today as we look at Jesus's name and God's name, right, these two, like God introducing himself and saying, here's my name, and Jesus being identified in Matthew's genealogy as here's Jesus's name, these names have so much meaning that I think oftentimes because we're not we're not Jews, we're not in the first century, we're not, you know, even people who can read Greek, like we, they kind of, it kind of goes over our head, we kind of miss the meaning that is in these names, and the way that God introduces himself, and the names that he chooses to use, both for himself in the Old Testament, and for Jesus in the New Testament, there is a foreshadowing, and a fulfillment of what God is doing, and who he is in these names, and so I just want to kind of touch on them, so last week we talked about uh, Jesus being the son of David. Today we're talking about Jesus being the son of Abraham, and we're going to kind of get to that. So I want to start here with this genealogy. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. Um, that was the weirdest cell phone ring I've ever heard. Uh, I'm not going to read the entire genealogy again for you, although I may do that next week, and that would be fun. 
Um, but I'm just going to look at verse 1, right? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So when Matthew starts this, the two things that he thinks are most important to the Jews in the first century is identifying, hey, this is the Jesus that was talked about in the lineage of David. You would be asking that question first if somebody came to us and said, I'm Jesus next week in the office. The first questions I would ask, are you from the line of David? <laughs> were you born in Jerusalem? Or were you born in Bethlehem? Are you a Jew? Like Those would be the first questions. The disqualifiers would be if they weren't from the line of David and if they weren't from the town of Bethlehem and if they weren't you know, from that, that part of uh, the lineage of Israel. Right? So Matthew is identifying Jesus, qualifies as a son of David, and he qualifies as a son of Abraham. And then he goes through the whole genealogy, 17 verses, which we read last week. Um, and then he finishes with verse 18. Okay? So notice in verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So he calls him Messiah, then son of David, then son of Abraham. 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And so Matthew identifies again that Jesus' name is Jesus the Messiah, right? And that translates, well, it translates differently here in Greek, but in the Hebrew, it translates to Yeshua, and the word Messiah uh, translates to um, Mashiach, or Meshiach, which is Messiah, right? So Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, is what is written here. And that is the name that Jesus is given here in Matthew's understanding of what Je who Jesus is and kind of identifying who he is. And so to kind of understand the name Yeshua, we have to kind of take it apart um, and understand what it actually means. So the word Jesus translates into the word Yeshua in Hebrew. Um, and so that's how they would have said it, and it was probably heard. The name Jesus probably wasn't exactly used. In fact, Jesus and Yeshua actually translate a lot of times to Joshua. So this was a kind of a common name that was, um, you know, a lot of Jews had at that time. We've, there's multiple people with the same name as Jesus in the New Testament at the same time as him. So what's different about him, and who is he? Well, he's Jesus the Messiah, or Jesus the Christ, right? So we call him Jesus Christ. And Jesus, Yeshua, breaks down pretty kind of simply. The yeh part of it refers actually to God's name, right? So it's the word Yahweh is short, shortened to yeh, and Shua is the word save. So if you were literally translating Joshua or Jesus or this name Yeshua, you would basically translate it to God saves, or the Lord saves, or Yahweh, our Savior, okay? That's Jesus' name. That's what was said about him and the name that he was given. And in fact, when we see the angel comes to Joseph and Mary, he says to them, hey, you're going to have a son, and I want you to name him Jesus, for he will save people from their sins, right? His name means something, and it's very important. It connects back to this God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, right? And it's Yahweh saves, or Jesus is the God who saves. Um, and then Christ, or Messiah, is also a title that's given to him, and that would be Christios, or Messiah, and those words in Greek or in Hebrew mean the anointed one, and they don't just mean, in this case, 
an anointed one, they mean the anointed one. So if we're deciding who Jesus is based on what Matthew thinks, he says Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he's the anointed one of God who saves. That's what his name means when you take it apart. And so I want to go back to uh, Genesis, and I want to talk about kind of God's decision to enter into humanity and start relationships with people. Because God does something very interesting in Genesis. He sort of picks Abraham out from the crowd and decides that I'm going to create a people unto myself. And he starts a relationship, right, with Abraham. So I'm going to go to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this is God reaching out to Abram, whose names will be Abraham, and starting a relationship with him. And so it's Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and I will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And when we read that now, we read that in light of knowing the story of Jesus, understanding who he is and what his story looked like, and understanding that God fulfilled what he said to Abraham through the person of Israel. Now the Jews, when they read that, they said, oh, God is fulfilling this through Israel. Remember last week we talked about when there are uh, proclamations made in the Old Testament about what God is doing, oftentimes that they are fulfilled multiple times, right? And so in this case, when we read uh, a, a prophecy like this, we can see that it is both fulfilled in Israel and through Jesus, finally. That it's fulfilled multiple times through multiple different types of people. That in fact, when we see God's relationship with Israel, it's like a picture to us what it looks like to actually understand and know and be in a relationship with Jesus, which is coming. So it's a first fulfillment and kind of a second fulfillment. And what does he tell Abraham here? He tells him, uh, I want you to go, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. So he's, go- he's obviously going to have offspring, and that's going to turn into a nation of people. And I will bless you. right? So he's given his blessing to the people of Israel. And if you follow that forward to the new covenant, the people of God. Essentially anyone who follows God, this you know, is for Israel, and this also is in a secondary way for those of us who follow Jesus. He says, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the people on earth. And how does he bless all the people on earth? Ultimately, he does not do that part of it through the Jews. He does that through Jesus, which is a son of Abraham, and technically is through the Jews, right? So he fulfills the prophecy through Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment of all of these uh, prophecies. But I want you to understand that God doesn't wait for us to come to him. He comes to us. He plucks Abraham out of insignificance and calls him to do something. And when Abraham is obedient, he turns him into something. Right? When we talk about being the kind of church that pursues people, we get this idea from a God who first pursued us. Right? We get this idea from a God who went after a relationship with humanity to create uh, a people unto himself, and he's the one that took the first step, and he went to him, and he called him out. Right? Abraham doesn't necessarily do anything revolutionary other than be obedient to what God has asked him to do. And so God has pursued him, and God has reached out to him. 
when we look forward into who Jesus is, it's the same concept. Jesus comes to us. Right? We don't, in some way, work our way towards God and find ultimate enlightenment because of our good deeds or who we are or how hard we work. We find the connection with God because he sends Jesus to us and allows us to receive what he has done for us. Right? He's a God who pursues He's a God who comes after us and pursues us. It's a great thing to wrap a church around. It's a great idea for a name. It's a good thing for us to have as kind of the core of who we are. We would much rather be going to the community and reaching out to people than expecting them to come to us all the time. Right? One of those things that we're doing this week is the Operation Christmas, or not Operation Christmas Child, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> Operation Joy. Like, and I want you to understand that we're working with our local partners to serve as 600 families in our community, over 1,000 kids. Each kid's going to get probably two toys. We're going to distribute in about a day over 2,000 toys to families that are needy in our neighborhoods. Like They live right here around us. They use the food shelf. That's how we vet the families that we work with. So all of them have gotten, received help from the food shelf this year and been vetted through the food shelf. Almost all of them are part of the school system here. Many of them are your neighbors, and maybe you don't necessarily know that they need the help, but many of them are your neighbors. And that's us going to the community to fill a need, right, and to reach out and pursue the people around us and to work with the organizations around us that are taking care of the needs of the community. We're called to do that, to be pursuing people. And this is who God is. When we talk about God's name here in just a second, we need to understand that he's a God who pursues. He's a God who goes first. He makes a covenant here with Abram, not because Abram's done anything to deserve it, because he's the kind of God who does this. And it's not based on, Ab there's nothing here about Abraham's behavior. He just says, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to guarantee it. And it's going to be based on me guaranteeing this for you. Not based on you fulfilling your end of the bargain. It's going to be based on me doing something for you. When Jesus comes, it's the same thing. He offers us grace for free. He asks us just to receive. Okay, and so this picture of who God is, you know, I find that there's a lot of people who want to say that, you know, God, the God of the Old Testament is mean and angry, and he's different than the God of the New Testament. When I see Jesus and I think about you know, the God of Noah's flood or the God of, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. I just can't relate these two things together. They just don't make any sense. And I want you to understand this God is the same God, right? This is his character to pursue us, to draw us into relationship. And yes, there's judgment and there is wrath that comes along with justice. And we can have that conversation all day long. But the same things that we love about Jesus are displayed in this God of the Old Testament as well. Like these aren't, these aren't separate gods doing something. They are the same God, and Jesus is the fulfillment of what is happening in the Old Testament, right? So here we go. I want to go uh, jump ahead to Exodus 3. And this is Moses being drawn in again. In fact, Moses' name means to be drawn out of the water. Drawn out is what he does when he uh, saves the, or leads the Israelites out of captivity. Uh, and so this is Moses sort of meeting God at the burning bush while he is in exile. God is drawing him into a relationship, and he's pursuing 
Moses, he's out on the, the fields there with his livestock, and all of a sudden uh, a bush lights on fire, and he is drawn into it and has this conversation with God. And God calls him to do something, calls him to go and save the Israelites, but he has kind of a problem. He says, okay, I will do what you've called me to do, but when I get there, they're going to ask which God I'm there representing. It's like a, it's like a pretty standard question. Like, it's a pretty good question to ask. Like, What's your name? What am I supposed to say about who you are? And in that day, there would have been tons of gods, right? And so he had to know, which God am I representing here in this moment? What's your name? And then God responds, okay? And so here's the Here's the interchange between the two of them. Verse 10 of Exodus chapter 3. So go, now I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring the people, the Israelite, bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Why am who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. That's definitely a sign. If they're no longer in captivity and they're all the way over here, they're not in captivity anymore. It's a good sign. I like that one. Um, he's saying, hey, when, when you get all the way out, then you'll know for sure that it's me who's calling you. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What then shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you, right? So he, he basically says, hey, uh, I exist. I am eternal. I am who I am. And God is identified by what he does. He says, just watch and see. When you're here worshiping, you'll see who I am. That'll show you the character that I have. I'm not a God that loves to watch people suffer. I'm a God that, you know, frees people from bondage and takes them out and creates something out of them. I'm a God who invites people to leave their way of life, leave bondage, and go to another place. It's what he does with Abraham. It's what he's doing with Moses. It's what he does with Israel. And on and on and on through the entire Old Testament, he's drawing people out of something old and freeing them from sin and causing them to become something new. And then Jesus comes and does the same thing. He calls us out of bondage. He calls us out of our sin. And he calls us into something new and creates something out of us. And so it's a good question to ask. And he says, I am who I am, I am has sent you. And so when Jesus says, before Moses, before Abraham, before the prophets of the Old Testament, I am, he's really saying something to the, to the nation of Israel. He's saying, I am eternal. I am the one who is in the bush. I am the same God who is in the Old Testament. I want you to understand, when he says that, he's identifying that he is God, and he is doing the same thing. You know, we talked about the name pastor for me it has to do with my identity or what I do, right? And when you talk about your identity, I don't want you to ever think that your identity should be wrapped up in what you do, but it is a part of who you are, right? The things that you do are a part of who you are, not just your career, right? Not just what you're doing in, to make money for your family or to take care of your, your, the needs of your life, but the, everything that you get a chance to do, it, is a, it becomes a part of your identity. And in this case, what... God is saying here is, I am the one who redeems, who draws people out of slavery, who brings grace into people's lives. Like, I am that person, and this is part of who I am. And then the last, in verse 15, he actually gives himself a name. And he says, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. And the Lord there translates to Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Remember we talked about last week, there's no vowels in, that, in those four letters, but that's the name of God. That, in fact, the writers of the Old Testament, they sort of, the way they wrote the Old Testament, they left the vowels out so that way the name of God wouldn't be said uh, fully because they had such an honor for the name of God they didn't want to actually use their own lips to say the name of God. I don't know if it was like a superstition that they were worried God would strike them dead if they were, had unclean lips and said it the wrong way, but they just had this thing where they wouldn't write it. So over time, we actually lost this, the pronunciation of this word. And it's our best guess that this word translates to Yahweh. You've also probably heard the word Jehovah, right? Y-H-W-H also translates, could translate to the word Jehovah. There was no J in the Hebrew language, and so it could have been pronounced, that Y could have been pronounced with a J, like Jerusalem or Jews. Like those were words that there was a J sound, but there wasn't a J letter, right? And so some people have translated it Jehovah, some people have translated it Yahweh, but it's the same name. It's the, it's the name of God, Yahweh. And so when Jesus is called Yeshua, that Yeh in the beginning of Jesus' name, or we translate it Jesus, right? Yeshua or J for Jesus. That directly refers back to either Yahweh or Jehovah, right? And it's this God, the Lord, the Lord of, of the Old Testament, saves through Jesus. Okay, and that's his name. That's what it means, and that's why it's important. And so when he identifies himself to Moses and says, hey, you tell them the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you, I, just think about this. God himself identifies him with this name and then identifies himself by his relationships with their forefathers. This is not, I think people get this wrong all the time. When I have conversations with people and they're like, you know, I just don't understand religion. It just doesn't make sense to me. And in their mind, religion is just a bunch of acts that they have to do to keep this angry God happy. I have to pray these rote prayers over and over and over. I have to go to someone and I have to tell them about my, my sins and I have to confess. I've got to go through the, the system here, making sure that I'm in church at the right time and I'm you know, kneeling and standing and up and down and we're singing this song and that song and we're doing this thing and that thing and I better do communion the right way and I better do that. And I just want you to know like all that religious stuff, all of the, those pieces, well, those are put in later by people. God is a God of relationship. God would much rather know you at the most intimate level all the way down to the deepest part of your heart. Right? He would much rather be known as the God of fill in your name. Right? The God of Mark. Like He is much more about defining himself by the relationships that he has drawn people into and the change that they have gone through in their relationship with him than going through the motions of religion. The motions of religion, they're not really that important. Our relationship with God is paramount. Right? When Jesus tries to talk about the final judgment and what that's going to look like, and the sheep and the goats, and there'll be people, he's like, I've, there'll be some people I have relationships with. I'll know them and they'll know me. We'll be intimately connected. I'll know them all the way down to the most inner thoughts that they have. Right? And there will be this exchange between us that guided their life. And then there will be people who went through the motions 
or didn't. And those people will be the ones that get judged harshly. And the people who are given grace will be the ones who have a relationship with me. And I don't know how clear I can make it, but Jesus coming into the world and putting on flesh is about as relationship-driven as you can possibly get on God's behalf. He says, I'm pursuing them, I'm sending myself to them. We're going to become like them so that we can relate to one another. Now, I just want you to stop and think about this for a second. We were having a conversation. I was talking with some friends the other night, and we were talking about this idea, especially, I'll just stop for a second and say, this is a problem for Gen Z. Like When Gen Z looks at Christianity, they think that Christianity is a very exclusive religion. And in some ways, Christianity is very exclusive. Jesus says, there is only one way to come to God. It is through me. That's it. Okay, so there is an exclusivity to Christianity. But also, there's an inclusivity that doesn't get matched in any religion of the world. Right? Every person who's related to Jesus has related to him in a way in their own culture. Right? So let me just give, just go with me for a second and let me give you an example of this. Like, there is a... a, a Temple is not the right word. There is a monastery, I believe, might be the right word, in, in Europe. And one of the things that people do throughout the world is they send in pictures of Jesus that they, they make. There are kids' drawings. There are adults that paint paintings. People send in pictures of Jesus. And what's amazing about this location and all of these pictures that have come in throughout the entire world, this place where Jesus' inclusivity is sort of celebrated, is the idea that Jesus is displayed in every single culture throughout the world. In one picture, Jesus may be Asian because someone who is Asian painted a picture of Jesus. And in one culture, Jesus may be African because someone from Africa painted a picture of Jesus. In one picture, someone may be, Jesus may be Brazilian. Now, we know Jesus was a first-century Jew who probably looked like what we would think of as an Arab today, right? But Everyone who relates to Jesus, almost, especially as children, we relate to him, and we, he looks like us, he thinks like us, he feels like us, he, he is like us, and so in a way, we connect with him. And Jesus takes on, Christianity takes on the culture of whatever, wherever it finds itself. It, there's a Brazilian version of Christianity that is just absolutely going bananas right now in Brazil, and people are coming to Jesus in droves because People in Brazil are presenting Jesus in a way that they can understand and relate to. It's the most inclusive religion that has ever existed because it works everywhere, because Jesus relates to all of us. And this is God saying, I want relationship with people, and so I'm going to step into the world, and I'm going to connect with humanity, and every single person who connects with me is going to understand that I am like them, that I've gone through all the same things that they've gone through, I've dealt with all the same pain that they've dealt with, I've struggled through the same struggles that they have. I am like them, and they will understand me. And it's God being relational. So when God tells us, here's my name, but also tell them that I'm the God who connected with their forefathers. I'm the one who led Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm, I'm in relationship with their forefathers. This is the God that we're talking about. Yes, this is my name, but also this is who I am and what I do. And I think when John opens up his, remember we talked about last week that Matthew opens up his gospel in a certain way and it doesn't seem quite as enticing as the way John opens up his. Well, here's what John has to say in John chapter 1 about Jesus. Look what he, look what he says. Verse 
uh, 1 of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, and in Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John starts with this just poetic version of what it looked like for Jesus in the beginning and how everything was made through him and that he was the word and he was with God and that he was always there, always eternal. He was always part of the plan. This was God fulfilling his entire plan through history and it was fulfilled through Jesus. And then in verse 14, this is what it says, the word became flesh. And I love the message version of this. It says something to the effect of the word moved into our neighborhood. Because this is who Jesus is. He's God's attempt to show us how he feels about us and let us know that he's about relationship. This is Jesus becoming flesh, moving into our neighborhood, becoming like us so that we can relate and be in relationship with him. If you just go to church your whole life and are a good person and you just you know, you give and you serve and you just show up for Sunday services and you just go through the motions of what it means to be a Christian or a follower of God and you miss the idea that Jesus became flesh so that you can have relationship with him, you have missed everything. All of that is for nothing. All of that religious activity is what comes after we've been changed by a relationship with this God who moved into our neighborhood. You know, and this is what Matthew is trying to get to, right? He's trying to help us understand that this Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is the one we've been waiting for. He's the anointed one, and he wants to be in relationship with us. So John says, the word became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. He moved into our neighborhood. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This is who Jesus is. So let me, just, let me just put the bow on this for you, right? The, the three ideas here. And if you're following along in the app, here's your fill-ins for today. God pursues us. He's pursuing you. He's after your heart. He wants to be in relationship with you, and he takes the step of pursuing you. Okay? He is the kind of God who wants to be in relationship and pursues us and he shows us that through Jesus. God fulfills the second one, his promises. And when he says he's going to do something, when he says this is my character and it's consistent and you can see it all the way through the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament that he has come to fulfill his promises through Jesus. And the last one is that God saves. He calls out Abraham and saves him to something completely different. He calls out Moses and saves him from being in the wilderness. He calls out Israel and saves them from the captivity that they're in. He sends Jesus and he calls us out and he saves us from our sins. In Matthew chapter 1, when he talks about Jesus will be called Jesus, they name him that because he's here to save us from our sins. This is what God's character is. And I want you to understand that every year when we look at this story, we can just sort of get into this you know, the, the, the nativity scene and what it looked like, and was it a barn or a cave or, or whatever, and we could talk about the details of, you know, make jokes about how it probably smelled ripe, you know, where Jesus was born, and, 
you know, like all this stuff. But we can miss the idea that this is God putting on flesh and stepping into our world. And you know, another name that comes along with Jesus is the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God put on flesh. Right? This is who Jesus is. This is who God is. And this is what he was doing when he stepped into our world. Now next week I'm going to look at, in this genealogy, another section of it and talk about some of the people that were left in and some of the people that were left out and what was God doing through that. Because there's actually a whole lot going on here that, again, if we weren't first century Jews, it would go right over our head and we would miss kind of the whole point of what Matthew is doing here. It shows kind of Matthew's big opening is actually bigger than we think because it doesn't hit us, but it definitely would have uh, riled up the Jews in the first century. All right, let, let me pray for us as we, as we close. Jesus, thank you that you stepped into our world and you put on flesh and you became like us. That it was important enough for you to relate to us that you took on pain and hunger and struggle and you went through every feeling that we go through, every situation that we deal with, that you stepped into our world and became like us. I thank you that you are a God who desires relationship. That you don't want us to just struggle through these religious motions, but you want us to focus on what it looks like to know you. And would you just continue to prepare our hearts to receive you fully this Advent season? That each year as we think about you putting on flesh and stepping into our world and becoming like us, God, that it would once again re refresh and renew our relationship with you. And that this season wouldn't just become about the things that are just uh, happening all around us or the, 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 the quickness of the season or like the busyness of the season, but that we would be focused on what it looks like to serve you during the season, to receive you during the season, to be changed by what you did for us. Thank you that you've given us grace. You've asked us to receive. You've done all the work and that you continue to pursue us. Would you continue to pursue us even through our hard-headedness, even through our stubbornness, even as we continue to hold you at bay? Would you continue to just wear us down until we understand what it looks like to know you fully? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.